Okay, our last podcast, which was number nine, was entitled Dressing the Bride, and it came out of Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Uh, the Lord is faithful, faithful as he instructs us what to take off, what to discard, what to peel off and leave behind us, and then what to put on, what to embrace, what to practice, what to receive by faith. And, and he works with us to see us become his church, his bride, his sons and daughters. The passage ended with a command to keep giving thanks through Christ to God. This week we want to be in Colossians chapter 3, 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. And this is one of the classic times when the whole thought pattern, the whole passage, the paragraph ought to run straight through. But I don't know what the translation committees were thinking. They chopped off that last verse and put it in chapter 4, and it doesn't fit there. So it's okay. We'll get there. <clears throat> Paul is uh, he's not doing an extensive teaching here on Christian marriage, on parenting, on slaves and masters and how they should relate. Instead, he is subtly taking on the cultural stronghold, the ancient cultural stronghold of household codes. For centuries, writers like Aristotle and, and Philo and, and um, Seneca, they, they had all amplified, they had all hardened, actually stiffened the code, the household codes, that, that the man of the house was a patriarch and he reigned royally. He was regal. He had the power of life and death over wives, children, slaves. He, he, you know, he was the house god, if you will. And, and Paul has to come up against that household code as he begins to teach the Colossians. In that time, in that ancient, those ancient households, the husbands were totally in charge of the house. The women were sort of servants only. Children were under the thumb of the father, and the slaves in the household were just possessions. They were chattel. They were useful but disposable property. This view of family life dominated the Roman Empire. Paul's not openly teaching revolutionary change here, but the reality is that when Christ comes into the heart of the family, transformation begins to take place. And when you transform families, you will change culture. 240 years pass from the time of this writing or when Paul was dictating this through an amanuensis. And at the time of Constantine, the emperor looks around and realizes the majority of the population in the Roman Empire are now converted to Christ. And he makes a political decision. And he says, oh, well, you're all legal now. You, don't, you won't be persecuted anymore. You're going to be legal. You have legal rights. Okay? The culture was profoundly changed. It took 240 years to do it, one family at a time. Now, revelation from God is changeless, but it is faced with cultural accommodation and application. Even today, you know, in the, in the churches spread around the world, uh, there are some churches that absolutely require women to have their heads covered in worship. That's 2,000 years old. And, and there are churches that say if a man is going to stand to his feet and pray, he's got to have his hands in the air when he does it. That's 2,000 years old. Obviously, for them, they're trying to be absolutely what that New Testament church was. 
But the reality is what was poured out in the, in the Colossian teaching and in their congregation, you know, the truth stands, the application has shifted. We're, we're not doing those things today. Okay? John Stott says this. Scripture is an amalgam of substance and form of eternal truth that transcends culture on one side and its transient cultural presentation on the other side. The former is universal and normative. The latter is local and changeable. In this text, the culturally accepted authority structures of the ancient household are quietly subverted, even while it is left in place. Paul doesn't try to dismantle the way it was taught and everybody was doing it. He just says, let's see what Christ can do with this mess. <clears throat> I'm sure he did, but I don't have that quote. <laughs> That's a pretty big fish. Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at chapter 3, verse 18. Note that the wife is the first one that's addressed. Now, we're not dealing with power structures here. We're, you know, we're not dealing with authoritative structures, but rather with behaviors and attitudes. And in this case, it's, it's directed at the wives. And uh, in this case, the wife has a choice to make. She's commanded to constantly be subject, be submissive to her husband. But the grammar here is in a middle voice. And the middle voice gives that wife the opportunity to voluntarily choose to submit. She's told to do it, but she has a choice to respond in a different way. Now, this verb, hupotasamai, is found all over the New Testament, uh, and it, it speaks of being in subjection to military authorities, governing authorities, leaders in local churches, to Christ and to God himself. Another way to say it is to rank yourself under, you know, to recognize, oh, that one's in charge, I'll just step underneath their, their authority, their covering, and go forward with that. Paul uses the word fitting, in, in verse 18, for how that wife, the wives, were to respond in a voluntary submission. And, and he says, obviously, it has to be in the Lord. Your voluntary response to, to be seated underneath the authority of your husband is in the Lord. It's a moral obligation, and it's also an expression of propriety in their submission. So without the Lord, it's a mess. Okay? Paul is lifting these wives out of being a recluse servant. They were, these, these wives were shut up at home. They had no public life. They were, behind, they were kept behind doors, and they were just treated like servants. They were a bed warmer, a sexual object, and bearer of children with no worth in that culture. With the, the one possible exception might be if that woman had money. You know, that's the man married the woman, and so she could shop for herself through the agency of slaves. She could own the slaves. She could sponsor events in the community from behind the door. Okay, then Paul turns and speaks to husbands in verse 19. These Colossian husbands were ordered to love as God loved, to sacrifice their agendas and desires for their wives to incarnate 
that agape love towards their wives. Now, that's the positive side of the command. The corrective side of the command in verse 19 is, husbands, stop being bitter toward your wife. Stop being harsh toward your wife. So the word in Greek is pikros, and it, it's, it means, there's, a, there's an implication that that bitterness is evil. And here Paul locks eyes. I realize he's writing to them, but essentially he's, he's locking eyes with these Colossian husbands who say that they're Christians, and now they have to understand that they're expected by Holy Spirit to be answerable by Holy Spirit to the, you know, for the love that they express for their wife. The Lord is going to get into that equation. No longer it's just husband and wife. It's husband, wife, and the presence of the Lord in the midst of that marriage. So the outcome here is that Paul is pointing the way to a partnership with the removal of the despot husband and the servant wife, opening the door to new joy, new completeness in Christ, and in each other. Now, next in verse 20, Paul introduces us to the offspring of those Colossian marriages. Note that Paul calls wives to submit, albeit voluntarily. Wives are to submit. Children are to obey. It's altogether a firmer command. Now, children are to listen, and, and the word actually is kind of a word picture. The children are supposed to listen by looking up and connecting and then obeying. So I watched my wife on Thursdays with her grandma school, if you will, with her, her preschool grandchildren. And, and I hear this term all the time. You know, she'll say, Jossie, give me your eyes. Grandma's eyes. Look at grandma's eyes. And, you know, it's like the child has to stop, turn, look up, and then do what grandma says. You know, the same picture here. It's, it's the children are to stop and look up and then obey and the text says they were to obey their parents in all things. Whew. I didn't. No. <laughs> okay, all things. Now, uh, when that you know when that does get worked out in a family in transition, where you have despot dads and servant moms that themselves have come to Christ, and they're learning to walk as new believers in Christ in Colossae. How do you think that transformation is going to look of families? There's going to be some rough spots. Same in our culture. Okay? Paul sets a target for the children, just so the kids aren't left out there. Just, just obey. Just do what you're told. Paul sets a target, and he says, Obey your parents, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Yes, you obey your parents, but know that you answer to the Lord Jesus. So 45 years ago, my wife is getting ready to have children. She was preparing to be a mom. She was reading. She was establishing principles in our home. She was getting ready to welcome number one son. She also uh, was beginning to teach those parenting principles to other couples that were ready to become parents. Some actually already had children, but they wanted to hear what she had to say. And she had discovered one of Dennis Guernsey's books. And in it was the following diagram. Now, some of you who are listening to this don't have the benefit of seeing it. Okay, but what Dennis had done was draw a large circle on a piece of paper and divide it into four quadrants, into equal pie slices. 
So top left in that quadrant, and under the title of authoritarian parenting, is what, what that means. Those parents who are authoritarian had high control and low love. That's descriptive of the husbands in the ancient household code. High control, no love. Children weren't to be seen but not heard. Children were to be under the, the tutelage of a, of a slave. You know, they were allowed to be with dad certain hours of the day. And that, was, that continued right through Elizabethan England. Okay? The second quadrant is down to the left going counter, counterclockwise. The second quadrant down is the permissive parent. Okay? The permissive parent lavishes care on children, but there's no boundaries. Okay? So it's, it's high love, low boundaries, low, low control. Okay? The third quadrant is lower right, and it is a passive parent. The passive parent is not present to their children. Okay? That's low control and low love, and the kids are left to parent themselves. And lastly, top right is a quadrant called authoritative parent. This is where there's high control and high love. Now, if you look at those two, authoritarian and authoritative, both have high control. But for the latter, the authoritative parent, the authoritative parent is one who cherishes and loves the child as they're parenting them. Now, authoritarian parents produce cookie-cutter kids. They'll be just like dad or just like mom, or they'll be rebels because they're held in such tight constraint. But neither of those, neither the cookie-cutter nor the rebel, has ever felt loved. Authoritative parents raise children who know the boundaries, voluntary, keep those boundaries, and they know without a doubt that they're loved. Those kids are obviously the most well-balanced, you know, most well-set-up and adjusted for life. Permissive parents smother the kids. You know, their diets are a wreck. <laughs> Snacks happen all times of, during the day. Yes, you can have that. No problem. Here, help yourself. Oh, you know, it's just, but there's no, there's no control. Okay, lots of love, no control. And as I mentioned earlier, the passive parents are just not present. Okay? Uh, Jan has a, uh, a model from school. It's called unschooling. You know, it's very much the same. There's no, pa- there's no boundaries and there's no, you know, careful love and care. Children sort of self-educate and, and whatever comes out, comes out. Here at Forge Church, we've embraced the authoritative parenting model. Now, Paul in verse 21 calls out the fathers in Colossae to not exasperate their kids. That's a word that says, don't provoke them. Don't irritate them. You know, do not suppress them so that when every time they come with a request, the answer is no. Martin Luther, who was the leader of the Protestant Reformation, all his adult life struggled when he was asked to lead in prayer in worship settings with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He couldn't get the our Father out of his mouth. It stuck. It just choked him up because his own father was exceedingly severe. And he just went, the God I know ain't like that. And it just stuck. He was stuck in that, in that process of having been raised with that kind of authoritarian setting. 
When fathers are too exacting, too negative, children are surrounded by morose childhood and the potential of a rebellious adulthood. Where they just say, enough of this. That's the least profane way that I could say that. Okay. <laughs> Paul here does not want the children treated in a manner that makes them lose heart or become dispirited. Now, because ancient households often included slaves, either those who had been sold, who had, they, people sold themselves into slavery because they were hungry, they were naked, they, they were like, I've got a skill, I can't get a job, I'll go sell myself into, into servitude for X number of years to this person, this family over here, because they need my skills. <clears throat> now, there's usually a beginning and an end to that, Slavery, but they did that. Or potentially they were bought off the slave block in the marketplace and, and fitted into a needed slot in the family. At the time of Paul's letter, 60 million slaves lived in the Roman Empire. That was half the population. Half of the people in the, in the marketplace walking around. Half the people in your neighborhood, they were slaves. And a large number of the new converts to Jesus Christ were the poorest of the poor, and a lot of them were slaves. So in the strongly patriarchal system of home formation and governance in Asia Minor, under the old household code, absolute obedience was expected of slaves in the household. Some of the heads of households in Colossae were now new believers in Christ. And here Paul is instructing these slaves how to respond to masters regardless of whether or not you have a Christian master or not. First, they were to obey their masters in the natural. You do what you're told, okay? But the text says, not with an external service. Okay, that's, that's a Greek word. It's a, it's a compound word. It means not with eye service. In other words, you're an excellent slave. You're an excellent servant when you're being watched, when somebody's got their eyes on you. Then you perform and they go, oh, it's all covered, no problem. But I have to leave town for a week. What do you think is going to happen to the slave who knows he's not being watched? Things get on a slippery slope and they just kind of drift. Okay? Paul is suggesting a definition here of integrity. Quote, you do the right thing at the right time when no one else is present and perhaps no one else cares. You do the right thing. And then Paul instructs the slaves to not be man-pleasers. It's again one of Paul's compound words. He, he pushes words together. He, he uses it here in Colossians and one other place in the New Testament. <clears throat> A man-pleaser... You can tell right away, who's in charge? Who do I honor? Who do I worship? And it's an inversion of what Paul is saying. He says, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> you don't be a man pleaser, but rather with, from a good heart, you fear the Lord and you honor the Lord and you answer to him. Not the earthly master, the heavenly master. <clears throat> a number of ancient writings exist. Uh, they're extra biblical, meaning they're not in the Bible, but they're of the same age. And those statements repeatedly say that 
Christian slaves drew a higher price coming across the slave block because Christian slaves could be trusted. They had good character and they worked diligently. Now, note that Paul continues on into verses 23 and 25. All those comments there, 23 to 24, 25, they're all aimed at slaves. So he had one verse for wives and one verse for husbands and a a verse or two for fathers and children, and then he goes, pours it out on slaves. Okay, Uh, this makes this section the longest of this address on the household codes, and rightly so because slaves ran the household functions. They tutored, they worked in the family business, they worked the gardens, they bathed and dressed the master, the wife, the children. They were, they were present in terms of, some, in some senses, a bodyguard, they were just there. They cooked, they cleaned, they, they, you know, and they did it all. They made that household run. Now, occasionally, if the wife was a management whiz, she could keep that going, and she could manage those, those slaves, and it worked really well. And if she wasn't a whiz at that, it really depended on the slaves to make dinner come out at the right time, etc. <clears throat> Paul says to them, whatever you do, whatever you begin to do, and that's, that could be a nothing. That could be just a little, pfft. in this case the word do, is it's just, it's just a, maybe even an afterthought. Whatever you do. Then he turns and he says, you labor with it. You seize that. You work it with excellence. See, he's going after slaves who work well when they're being watched, but they get slack and lazy and idle if they're not being watched. And he's, he's adding a corrective here. Okay? Now, as, as from the Lord, these Christian slaves in Colossae were to be diligent and serve out from the soul. It really was supposed to be a spiritual response in their serving. <clears throat> and they were to serve the Lord Christ and not men. An earthly master can reward a slave, but the heavenly master has promised them an eternal inheritance. Now, under the ancient household codes, again, the husband, the master, had the right to, to snatch a slave. The slave didn't own the clothes on his back. He had nothing. But that master could snatch the slave and kill it. He could snatch that slave and Strip it and place it on the, on the slave block, and he was gone. Okay? And here, Paul says to the slaves, you don't serve. You, know, you, don't, you don't ultimately serve that master. You serve the Lord Jesus. And the quality of your service will make you so valuable and so pleasant to be with that even an ungodly master has to have you around. And verse 25 there come some warnings to the slaves that if they do wrong, there will be consequences commensurate with the wrong that they do. Just being a Christian slave doesn't mean you get away with what you're doing. You know, it does not exonerate you from the penalties for wrongdoing. He warns the slaves. Don't, don't think that now that you know Jesus, it's all going to go you know, smooth and you're going to be covered when you make a mistake. No, there's consequences. And finally, ignoring the chapter break here... Jump into chapter 4, verse 1. Paul gets around to the masters. He's worked through wives and husbands and children and fathers and slaves. Now he gets to those that own them, own the slaves, own the wives in some senses, own the children. Okay, Here it is assumed that Paul is addressing Christians. 
Now, uh, perhaps men and women both owned slaves. I said, you know, if a woman had a dowry and she had a pile of money and her husband said, okay, this is yours, this part is yours, you can spend that anyway. She may have bought slaves. She, you know, there's, oh, there's, there's someone in town who's a slave who does fabulous nails. Ooh, gotta have her, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't know about that. <clears throat> okay. In, in any event, there's, there's, a men, there's men and probably women who own slaves. And Paul is calling on these masters who've been saved by the blood of Christ to turn to their slaves not as property, not as a thing, not as chattel, to deal with them as, as if there's this sense of I answer to, to my heavenly master. So that what happens is those slaves get treated with justice, and fairness. Unheard of. Absolutely unthinkable in the Roman Empire. So there are qualities that was, was, not, one of, um, of uh, was not one of condition. Slaves and masters aren't the same. You still are owned by that guy that bought you. But when you come and you sit and you break the bread and you drink the cup and you lift your hands and you praise the Lord, that's my brother sitting next to me. Now, when you walk out the door, you walk right back into slave and master. But in each case, that slave is learning to do the right thing for me all the time. And in that case, that master is treating me fairly and equitably. Because this is in the midst of, of a transforming condition in households in Colossae. Now, that was a shocking, massive shift that Paul had taught. That... that that rocked those households. Those slaves were no longer chattel who had no rights. Now, whether the slaves knew Jesus is a personal, you know, whether the slaves knew, knew Jesus in, in a personal way or not, that didn't matter. Okay, the masters were supposed to handle them with grace and with even-handedness and fairness. You know, it really is even with an honorable treatment. The hook again is that the masters have a heavenly master they're accountable to, to please him, to obey him, to serve him, and to answer to him as a son or a daughter of the king. This would bring a shift in the family and in the culture away from ownership to stewardship. Since now all these relationships, all these responsibilities are going to be part of God's business. He's injected himself in all those relationships. Now, I've read widely this last 10 days or so, getting ready to do this, a number of teachers and resources that were trying to pull this Colossian text into the 21st century marketplace. And I confess it bothered me to see such a powerful spin put on the text of Scripture, uh, how they did it. That, you know, I understand they were, they're trying to come up with a, a biblical framework for work. Okay? And I'm not sure how much that translates, but they're work, you know, it's being worked out even as we, we speak. Yes, we are to serve Christ in marriage roles, in parenting roles, as children not yet mature, but loving Jesus. See, and, and as such, then as a family, we learn to, to navigate and, and if we can accommodate culture. There's times things we cannot navigate and we cannot accommodate and we just have to say as, we, as for me and my house, we're not going there. That's evil. 
That's not for us. That's not our story. And we're also charged as families to begin to transform our culture. Just like the Colossians did. Since the first century, master and slave designations have dropped from our 21st century American marketplace and relationships. That just doesn't make sense. Okay? How might we as employees and business owners in Christ grasp the phrase that says, do your work heartily out from the soul as for the Lord rather than men? Likewise, Christian business owners and contractors are still called to deal with who they hire with justice and fairness. Uh, one of my sons, this goes back a couple of years, one of my sons had a contract uh, with a corporation to produce a website set of features for a website. And it was a good client. He wanted to, to produce excellent work. And so to, he knew a web developer who could get a major portion of that done. That man lived in Florida. So uh, my son got on the phone, made the contract, subcontract, if you will, with this web developer, and he sent him a sizable deposit. Along the way, my son would call and say, how's it going? Have we solved that problem? Hey, we ran into this thing. Can you insert this? And the answer every time was, yep, got it. I'm on it. It's happening. It's progressing. The day of delivery arrived, and the web developer had not done anything. My son was shocked. I mean, they had a relationship. They'd worked before. Now he felt betrayed. But nevertheless, he quietly severed the business relationship with the web developer and went immediately to try and find an emergency replacement. Months passed. The phone rang. It was the web developer from Florida who was calling to ask for forgiveness. During that contract season, if you will, that, the, the weeks and months that he was supposed to be working, apparently he had been in a horrible marital thrash. And, and life just imploded on him and nothing got done. And he had called to say that he acknowledged that he dropped the ball and he offered to work off the debt because he said the quiet manner that my son had used had made such a big impact on him and he wanted to make it right. All right, family. Husbands, wives, children, slaves, <laughs> masters. Okay, who's adequate for these things? And the Lord comes right back and says, I have made you adequate. You are adequate in Christ for any of these things. Let's pray. Lord of our households, we ask for grace and peace. Lord, as wives learn to voluntarily submit at stages and ages of life, and husbands learn at ages and stages of life to love their wives. We together want to be a generation that is not remorse. We want, we want to raise our kids that are not remorse and not dispirited due to overbearing parenting, Lord. We want to be authoritative parents, 
And Father, we want to be those who work out from the soul for you only in employment, in management, and in life. Help us transform this culture. In Jesus' name, amen.